What's the purposes, purpose of uh, checking with, with uh, references before you hire a new employee or, or a contractor? We would like to know as much as possible, don't we? Uh, it, about the strengths and even the weaknesses of those we, we do business with or work with. It's not much of a stretch to imagine that if a, a coach, for example, has helped several athletes uh, achieve success, they'll be able to help your kids too. In the same way, if a, a job candidate's former boss reports a history of, of laziness, tardiness, or disrespect, you might decide to hire someone different. Even insurance companies like to know about our health history before agreeing to a contract. Certain pre-existing conditions may change the terms that insurers offer. This may not seem fair, maybe it's not, but I think that we can appreciate why insurance companies would, would want to understand the, the whole context of uh, a person's health history before agreeing to cover the cost. Similarly, our text has something of a pre-existing condition. Uh, there are events and exigencies that have previously unfolded before we get to our text, which determine the outcome of what transpires in our text. To put it plainly, God's servants, his prophets, and his faithful vineyard owner have been slaughtered. He has announced, God has announced his plans to do something about this injustice. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, through chapter 9, verse 37, we see him carry out his justice. One question that we should all contemplate from this text is this. What is my pre-existing condition according to the Bible? Have I opposed God as an enemy or am I one of his faithful servants who he will vindicate on the last day? If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8 verse 16. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, through the end of chapter 9, verse 37. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pew, I believe you can find the passage on page 314. 314. In our study of Kings, we have seen Solomon's rise and fall. And we've encountered the miraculous ministry of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. This morning in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16 through chapter 9, verse 37, the, the kings of Israel and Judah, they come back into kind of sharper focus. But mainly for the purposes of revealing the certainty of the word, uh, certainty of the word of the Lord is given by His prophets. What you need to know about our passage is this. It has a pre-existing condition that we find in 1 Kings chapter 19 and 21. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and 21, through the prophet of Elijah, Yahweh has predicted that Jehu would rise and that Ahab's house would fall. In other words, God foreordained what comes to pass in our text. The programmatic statements of the Lord of, through his prophets, through his prophet in 1 Kings 19 and 21, predetermined what we find would happen here. Do the people in the text do everything they want to do? Absolutely. God sovereignly brings the pieces into place. He sets the people in motion and he brings his promises to pass. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, 
You know, that feels strangely similar to what we heard last week. Uh, Then you're beginning to get the message of kings. In fact, you're beginning to get the message of the Bible. God announces his word and he fulfills his word. He has announced his promise to send his Messiah and he's going to do it despite the sin of his people. Sometimes the promises of God's word include an announcement of grace and mercy and hope. And sometimes promises of God's word include an announcement of discipline, punishment, and judgment, and justice. That's true of what we find in our text. God brings to pass his promises of discipline, punishment, and judgment as he will not let sin go unpunished. We've lingered here long enough. Let's turn to the text. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16 through chapter 9, verse 37 in two sections under two headings. First, God's pre-existing judgment. And second, God prosecutes His judgment. The first section sets up what follows in the second. In the first, God, in effect, gets the condemned in their place of judgment, of punishment. While in the second section... The punishment comes to pass. It's going to take a little work for us to see God's pre-existing judgment. Let's dig in now and take a look at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. This is where God puts the condemned in their place. For now, follow along as I read uh, chapter 8, verse 16, just to verse 24 for now. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever." In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over Zair with all his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Did you follow all of that? Did you keep your kings and your kingdoms straight? Did you keep your Jorams and Jehorams straight? Uh, in, In these verses, we begin to read what is so typical of the book of Kings. Verses 16 and 17 announce what is commonly known as a regnal formula. The the author uses the same language throughout the book to introduce a king and his reign to us. And there are multiple features of these regnal formulas. The the regnal formulas often include the year of the king's reign, uh, the king who was reigning in the opposite kingdom, uh, and... uh, and, he, um, and when he began his reign, and how long he reigned, and often how old he was. Uh, so it's easy to get mixed up as we read these formulas, because the author of Kings is, is actually bouncing back and forth between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. At, at one point, um, the author is in one kingdom, but then he'll advance to another later on. You can, you can think of it a bit like ice skating. 
uh, or running, if you prefer, not ice skating, or if you don't prefer running, you can pick ice skating, either way. At one point, the author has one foot in front of him, right, but you've got to catch the other kingdom up to be at the chronological same kind of point in time. So that's what's happening here. But there's one more challenge about these regnal formulas in the book of Kings. And that is that sometimes there's these things called co-regencies, when two kings rule at the same time in the same kingdom. All of these factors are actually kind of present here in our text. Over the past several chapters, the author has had the northern kingdom's foot out in front, but here he swings the southern kingdom's foot out in front by giving us a short account of Jehoram. Now there's another challenge. All of these names sound the same. <laughs> there is Joram in the north and Jehoram in the south. Yeah, yes. In fact, in the text, you'll see that at one point you can actually call Jehoram Joram, kind of as a nickname. So the king in the south can actually have the same sounding name as the king in the north completely. And the author actually switches to his name, to, to the name Joram, a shortened version. So there's a northern Joram associated with Ahab and a southern Jehoram associated with Jehoshaphat. But you can call him Joram too, if you feel like it. And the author feels like it. So do you have all of that straight now and everything that's going on? Likely not. Uh, many think that this is just one of the idiosyncrasies of the text or the author and of the text. But I think there's actually another possibility. Perhaps the author doesn't actually, actually want you to see any daylight between the kings and their kingdoms. Perhaps the author wants us to see similarities between Joram and Joram. Uh, part of the design of the narrative may be actually to get us a bit twisted up so that we see that the south has become like the north. In fact, in the text itself, there's a single figure, a person who spans both the northern and southern kingdom. It's Ahab. Ahab is that awful king we met in 1 Kings who married the Baal-worshipping Jezebel. And he invited Baal worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. He provoked the Lord to wrath more than any other king. But what does that have to do with what we read here? Well, we have a direct descendant of Ahab in the northern kingdom, Joram. The king in the south, Jehoram, has married Ahab's daughter. You see that in verse 18. This king, the king of Judah, we're told in verse 18, walked in the way of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, he was walking in the way of the northern kings. This means that he was given over to idolatry and covenant disobedience. Do you see how Ahab's kind of awfulness has spread and infected the southern kingdom? Do you see how Joram of the south is not so different than Joram of the north? The southern kingdom has become like the northern kingdom in its faithlessness because the southern king has become like the northern king. And that means this king, Jehoram, in the south was worthy of judgment. Yet, as we read in verse 19, do you see that yet there? Yet, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah, that's the southern kingdom, for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. What amazing patience from God. What amazing mercy. What amazing persistence in the face of pernicious evil. What amazing commitment to his covenant. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Yahweh, God, promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And here we see that despite Judah's faithlessness, 
Yahweh remains faithful. God would remain faithful to send His Messiah and King. As we look down the the long arc of biblical history, we see that God kept His word of promise. He kept His word to so many others too. God kept His word to Adam when He promised to send a seed to crush the serpent. God kept His word to Abraham to give him a son who would be a blessing to the nations. God kept His word to Moses to raise up a prophet like him whom the world should listen to. God kept His word to David to give him a descendant to sit on His throne forever. This is what He has done in Jesus. He kept the lamp in Jerusalem, 2 Kings 8.19, so that He could send the word made flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is God's words to us. He has spoken a certain word to us in Jesus, and it is a word of forgiveness and hope and love. Friend, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. We need to repent and come to Jesus because we all have a pre-existing condition of sin. We've rebelled against the living God. And because of that, His wrath remains upon us. And one day His judgment will fall if we do not repent, believe, and be reconciled to Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great King that Saul, David, Solomon, Jehoram, and the rest never were. He was always and only personally and perfectly and perpetually devoted to God. Jehoram, he had a divided heart, a heart divided between the worship of God and the worship of false gods. But Jesus' heart was wholly true and wholly devoted to God the Father. He was sinless, and as the sinless Son of God, he brought pleasure to his heavenly Father. Jesus wasn't merely disciplined for sin. No, he was judged for sin. On the cross, he endured the eternal wrath of God against the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and trust in Him. And three days after His death, as we confessed earlier in the service, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners is acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus, He is uniting in Himself God's people who are scattered all over the globe. The lamp of God promised in 2 Kings 8 has become the light of the world. So friend, would you confess in your heart that you've not been wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you confess that your sin has brought God's displeasure and that you deserve God's discipline and eternal judgment? If you would make this your confession, then you can find hope in Jesus Christ. For He is the King who is wholly devoted to God. He is the King who rescues His people from God's judgment because He took it for them. He is the King who brings God's beloved people into God's glorious kingdom. So come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith today. Turn from your sin and trust that He lived and died and He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sin. By now, you're probably wondering, but what does verse 19 have to do with God's promise of discipline or His His pre-existing verdict? Well, He is committed to His promises of discipline. You see, the mention of David ought to recall other promises from 2 Samuel 7 as well. See, there in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that should David's son go astray, should a king from David's line turn away from God, that Yahweh would discipline him as a son. So yes, while God's promises have in view events further down the road of redemptive history in Jesus Christ, 
they also have nearer-term events in view as well. They have more immediate events in view. So here's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes, the son of men. This is a pre-existing condition for our text. In other words, God has promised to discipline Jehoram for his idolatry and disobedience. And that's why we have the revolts of Edom and Libna in verse 22. They're a form of Yahweh's discipline. And, and so they show us that he is in fact committed to his covenant promise to David. This promise to David to discipline his wayward son goes hand in hand with actually another pre-existing condition of our text. The promises of God found in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28 verse 30, 25 we read this. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And what do you see there in verse 21? Joram, also known as Jehoram, and his army flee. They were forced to flee before the Edomites. God's commitment to his covenant promises is a two-edged sword. His wrath is heavy upon sin. God has promised to discipline David's son. And that's what he's doing here. Verses... 23 and 24, they reveal that the author of Kings has communicated all that he needed to about Jehoram of Judah's reign. And so he passes on to describe the reign of his son Ahaziah in verse 25. And, and can you guess what we learn about this son and king of Judah? We find it there in verse 27. What's, what's Ahaziah like? Well, he also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. I hope that you're uh, beginning to see that while these kings were, were real figures and really important, that Ahab and his legacy, it looms large over them. The southern kingdom and the northern kingdom have become a lot alike. And it's in large part due to Ahab's influence. The southern kingdom is just as worthy of God's promised discipline as the northern kingdom. The, the biological connection to Ahab and the marriage connection to Ahab unite the kingdoms there in verse 28. And they go off to battle together against Syria. Joram, the northern kingdom, uh, the king of the northern kingdom is, is wounded in battle and he retires to, to Jezreel in order to recover. Where later, Ahaziah joins him there. Now, why is this significant? What's the big deal about Jezreel? Well, this was a place where Ahab... And wicked Jezebel murdered faithful Naboth. They murdered him and his whole household. Jezreel is where they stole his land. They have returned to the scene of the crime. Or God has returned them to the scene of the crime. And for his evil, Ahab was promised in 1 Kings 21 that he would die. And that his whole household would be cut off. That's the pre-existing judgment that conditions our text promised. This means that the two kings are in the place where God promised Ahab that his household would die. And listen to this special promise given to that special woman Jezebel from 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 23. The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. You see what's going on here? As readers... This location, Jezreel, should set us to wonder if God is going to fulfill His pre-existing promises of judgment and to wipe out 
the house of Ahab. The, the author is, is hiding our expectations, our anticipation. And in fact, this is where chapters 8 and 9 are headed. They are headed to the fulfillment of the word of the Lord given to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 21. There Elijah promised that the discipline of God would fall on the house of Ahab. And the offspring and household of Ahab are going to be put to death. And Jezebel is going to meet her end because the word of the Lord, the promise of God, must be fulfilled. If 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16 to 29 remind us of God's pre-existing judgment in 1 Kings 21, then 2 Kings chapter 9, the first 13 verses of that chapter, they remind us of another promise of judgment found in 1 Kings 19. Now, when we read the scriptures, we sometimes have to go back in order to go forward. As we prepare to read these verses, 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, put this thought in the back of your mind. These verses remind us of another pre-existing verdict. Read Second uh, Kings chapter 9, just verses 1 to 10 for now. Then Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. I think that I'd get out of the way too. Jehu is about to go and unleash this violence that we see depicted. Now you understand the, the basic outline of what happens here, right? Elisha commissions a, a fellow compatriot, part of the guild of the prophets, to go and anoint Jehu as king of the northern kingdom of Israel. There's just one problem. There's already a king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Elisha is orchestrating a coup, but it is a divinely authorized and promised coup. Now, when Elisha commissions this man to go and anoint Jehu as king, Elisha must have told him a good bit more than the initial instructions that we see here. Because when this, this servant of the prophets arrives to anoint Jehu, he has a lot more to say about why he is anointing Jehu as king of the northern kingdom of Israel. In sum, Jehu is anointed, being anointed as king for the purpose of carrying out Yahweh's pre-existing judgment on the house of Ahab and on Jezebel. And as, as I mentioned before we read this passage, along with the promise of 1 Kings 21, Jehu's anointing takes place in accordance with another promise of God. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 17, we're told that anyone, anyone who escapes the sword of Haziel, king of Syria, 
they would meet with the sword of Jehu. Now think back to the end of chapter 8. Who just escaped the sword of Haziah, Joram, and Ahaziah? So what must happen to fulfill 1 Kings 19 and 1 Kings 21? Joram and Ahaziah must run into the sword of Jehu. And that's what will happen in the remainder of the chapter. God will fulfill His promises of judgment through Jehu. But before we see these promises come to pass, we ought to consider what this would have meant. What we've just read and studied together. What this would have meant for the first readers of Kings. And what this should mean for us. In light of Ahab's connections strewn throughout chapter 8, the first readers of Kings should have carefully considered their own connections, even in exile. Perhaps we should say even especially in exile. The king of Judah connected himself to the evil house, to evil Ahab, through marriage. And then he partnered with Ahab's house in war. It seems like an application born from a cliche, but it's true. Marital connections matter. It matters who you marry. That's not the only connection that matters. The scriptures teach us that friends and companions matter too. So Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 tells us this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And here's Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Make no friendship with a man who is given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And Psalm 1 tells us this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Consider what connections you make in this life. Consider who might be a godly, wise, and caring friend and companion. As the ancient people of God needed encouragement to persevere in the exile, while they waited for God to accomplish His purposes, so we need wise godly and caring companions and friends while we wait for the return of Jesus and the final fulfillment of God's promises. Consider too that like Ahab, you might have an influence and impact on others. You might have an impact on others. Just as Ahab's unrighteous influence rippled through subsequent generations of his family, so you may have an impact and influence on, on others for generations to come. Will it be a righteous influence and impact? We pass on principles of life to our friends and companions, and they pass on those as, to others as well. No man is an island. Every man and woman sends and receives ripples to and from their connections. Consider your connections. And consider the Lord's discipline. Through Edom and Libna, through their revolt, Jehoram was undergoing the Lord's discipline. That was a gift from God. That discipline was a gift from God to Jehoram to wake up and see that he was on the path of rebellion and that he needed to repent and get off that path and onto the path of righteousness. The people of God in exile needed to repent and return to the Lord while they were undergoing his discipline. And sometimes, sometimes we undergo discipline. We learn about this in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. There we're told that the Lord's discipline is a sign of His love for us. Can you believe that? God's discipline is a sign of His love for us. It's a sign that He's not forsaken us, but that He's pursuing us, that He's teaching us, that He's with us, that He's training us so that we might yield a peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. When you feel like God's hand is heavy on you, examine whether or not there is anything you need to repent of. And above all, remember that the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Consider the Lord's discipline as a sign of His love to you, beckoning you to draw near to Him for strength, for solace, and for satisfaction and sanctification in Christ. Consider also God's commitment. We see God's commitment in not allowing the lamp of David to go out, but also in anointing Jehu as king. He is committed to bringing about His purposes of mercy and judgment. This is what we find in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 14 to 37. Here we learn that God will not be deterred. We see His commitment. He's committed. And since He cannot be deterred, we can depend upon Him in faith and love. Well, let's turn now and take a look at 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 14 to 37. Here we see, here we learn, that God's promises of discipline, His pre-existing judgment, is not an empty threat. All that has been anticipated in the previous section unfolds in verses 14 to 37 of chapter 9. Uh, they contain two distinct scenes, this next section that we're going to look at. Two distinct scenes where God prosecutes His judgment. That's the title of this point, God prosecutes His judgment. Let's begin by considering the first scene, which we find in verses 14 to 29. If you'll permit me, I just want to kind of summarize them and point you to some key verses in this section. Immediately after Jehu's anointing, the son of the prophet, he gets out of Jehu's way as he's proclaimed king there in verse 13. But in verse 14, the conspiracy is announced. And from that point forward, Jehu is furiously on a mission. He went forth without delay. He did not pass go. He did not collect $200. He went right for Jezreel. The tail end of verse 15 makes clear that Jehu didn't want the news of his anointing to get out ahead of him, in front of him. So he drove his chariot hard and fast. And the author reminds us that both Joram and Ahaziah, having escaped the sword of Haziel, are resting in Jezreel. Jehu's chariot must have been kicking up a cloud of dust because the watchman alerts Jehoram, or Joram to the fact that a company of men are on their way to Jezreel. So Joram, he, he quickly sends out a horseman to go and find out who this company is and what they want. When the horseman meets up with Jehu, Jehu says, look, fall in behind. And he does. And this happens a second time. This second horseman comes out from the city and he falls in behind Jehu. But by now, they're within the side of the watchman and he can tell that this chariot... Look, it's, it's kind of driving a lot like Jehu drives his chariot. Apparently, uh, Jehu has this reputation for being something of a lead foot. Uh, good thing he didn't good thing he'd have a fish on the back of his chariot. But Joram and uh, Ahaziah are still unaware that a coup is underway. So they mount up and they go out and they see their friend Jehu. And note carefully where they meet. Do you see that there at the end of verse 21? They meet at the property of Naboth in Jezreel. We have returned to the scene of Ahab and Jezebel's crime. And now comes the judgment on Ahab's house. And look closely at the conversation that unfolds between Joram and Ahaziah when they meet Jehu. They, they ask him if he comes in peace. And what's his reply there in verse 22? Do you see it? Jehu answers, What peace can there be? so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. You see, this is the issue that Yahweh has with the king of Israel. He has abandoned covenant faithfulness and gone after other gods. 
He has given himself and the land over to idolatry. And notice that Jehu, he hasn't sugarcoated it, has he? How often do we sugarcoat sin, even when we're speaking of it in the, subject, in the context of judgment? I think we need to speak honestly about sin, about its awfulness, about how it attempts to ungod God, as one believer said. Jehu speaks honestly about the sin that is hovering over these kings. And repeatedly, Jehu has been asked whether or not he has come in peace. And the truth is, as long as sinners cling to sin instead of the Savior, there can be no peace, but only a sword. Sin must be forsaken, and the Savior must be embraced. We must lay down our idolatry and lay hold of Christ by faith. Discipline and judgment has been promised generally from the Pentateuch, from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And discipline and judgment has been promised particularly in 1 Kings 19 and 21. And now Jehu has arrived to prosecute the Lord's judgment. Take a look at verses 23 and 24. Read those verses. Then Joram reigned about, that means he's like turning his chariot about furiously, reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. See that there? Jehu, he draws his bow, puts his arrow right through the heart of Joram. And having put him to death, in verse 25, Jehu instructs his aide to cast Joram's body on Naboth's property in fulfillment of the word that the Lord spoke through Elijah. Uh, to, spoke to, to Ahab in 1 Kings 21. One king down, one more to go. In verse 27, we see the Ahaziah, he tries to flee, but he's mortally wounded only to die in Megiddo. And given his connection to David, he's given a more honorable burial in Jerusalem. This is an awful scene. But is it really God's judgment or is it Jehu's coup? Yes, it is God's judgment and it is Jehu's coup. And verse 26 makes painfully clear that this is Yahweh's judgment. This was the Lord's pronouncement. For the Lord saw the injustice perpetrated against Naboth and his sons. You see there in verse 26. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now necessity, it textures these words. In fact, necessity is ingrained in the character of the promises of God. Just consider Jesus' perspective on the fulfillment of the Scriptures in the Gospel of Luke. Consider this from Luke chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said, For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Do you hear the, the sense of necessity in Jesus' words? When Jesus is referring to this scripture, he's speaking about the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53. But don't lose sight of the must of Jesus' words. He said, the scriptures must be fulfilled. He said, for it is written about me, it has its fulfillment. In accordance with the scriptures, Jesus must be betrayed, beaten, tried, crucified, and buried. It was what the scriptures predicted. And if they have predicted them, they must be fulfilled. There is no other way. The cross was certain. It always was. Necessity is ingrained in the character of the promises of God. Which is to say uh, that it must come to pass. 
This is what we learn from another angle tonight from John's Gospel. In John 9, Jesus said that a man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this frowning providence in this man's life, this man who was born blind, was foreordained by God so that Jesus might heal the man and be revealed to be the Savior. In other words, so that the scripture of Isaiah 35 verse 6 might be fulfilled. Isaiah 35 verse 6 says that when the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Learn this lesson from Jesus. Learn this lesson from 2 Kings. Our God is committed to His promises. When God promises judgment upon the house of Ahab, He is going to bring it to pass. Indeed, God is bringing it to pass. He is moving from promising to prosecuting His judgment. That's what we're seeing here. And we see it in the scene that closes the chapter as well. Follow along as I read 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And Jehu, as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel. So that no one can say, this is Jezebel. This scene, it has the makings of an old western showdown. Right? Jehu, he rolls up in his chariot outside the palace in Jezreel looking for Jezebel. And she's not afraid to show her face, is she? She gets all dolled up as she faces the prospect of death. She has a ruthless streak in her. Her dealings with Naboth tell us that much. This is what one commentator said about Jezebel. She was godless but gutsy. With max factor on her face and sarcasm on her lips, she faced Jehu head on. She sure did. She painted her face, but then her face was planted in the ground as she was tossed out the window by the eunuchs. This is gruesome when you think about it. We're given this gory scene about blood being spattered on the wall and her body being trampled on by horses for good measure. But it doesn't end there, does it? No, Jehu, he heads inside to his newly annexed royal palace, has himself a drink and a nice warm meal. And after he, his meal, he tells his servants to go out and say, okay, look, we need to, to bury this gal. And yet, when he sends for her to be buried, all that's found is her skull, her hands, and her feet. And upon hearing this news, Jehu confirms that this is just as the Lord said it would be in 1 Kings 21. The Lord's discipline and judgment were prosecuted to the fullest extent of His promise. Why do we have all these gory details? It's not just for the purposes of a good story, though it is a good story. 
It's also for the purposes of communicating that God fulfills His promises. He, he prosecutes His judgment in an exacting and full manner. And this, this would have been comforting to the first readers of this book. And it should be comforting to us too. Remember the people of God who first received this book, they, they were suffering in exile. They were out of their land. They were waiting to be returned. And as they watched and they waited in exile, they were receiving these extravagant promises from God and His prophets. Promises of punishment of their enemies. And promises of their release from captivity. Promises of the restoration of their land. Part of the reason that these gory details are promised, prosecuted, and published is to reassure God's people that their enemies will not go unpunished. Those who oppress God's people will not escape God's punishment. The faithful servants, those who speak the faithful word of God, and the, the faithful Naboths living in exile who are hated and hunted by the enemies of God will be remembered. God sees their desperate plight. He sees their suffering. He sees their bloodshed. And He cares. The enemies of God's people will receive their just due. They will receive their punishment from God. But sometimes, there is a delay between that promise and the prosecution of God's punishment and discipline. It has been years and years since Ahab's slaughter of God's prophet. It had been years and years since Naboth's murder had been avenged. But the people of God in exile needed to know that no matter how many years it takes, that God would keep His promises, that vengeance belongs to the Lord, and that He would repay. And did you know that this is a comfort that we, as the New Testament people of God, receive from the book of Revelation? Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on all those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God knows when His servants and faithful followers like Naboth suffer. It doesn't escape his notice. He will justly avenge their deaths when the time is right. Sadly, more believers in Jesus must die. Maybe we, or our children, will be some of them. And if that is the Lord's providence, then we must entrust ourselves to Him. Entrust our fellow believers to Him. We must wait patiently for His justice to roll down. And we must be careful not to take matters into our own hands. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And as we can see from 2 Kings chapters 8 and 9, God, our God, is quite able to repay. Christian, God sees your suffering. He knows. And He will right all wrongs. Yet once more, God will send His Son. Just as this text would have encouraged the saints in exile to wait another day for God to send His messianic king, so we too, we can wait another day for the Lord Jesus to return. We can wait. We can pray. Come, Lord Jesus. 
You see, Jesus' return, it's a pre-existing condition fixed into God's divinely planned, revealed in history. We don't know when all of the pieces and the players will be in place according to God's design. We don't know when Jesus will return, but Jesus told us, He told us Himself that He will come again. And our God and our Savior, He keeps His promises, as we've seen here in this text. On that day, He will come with a sword like Jehu. And He will also come to rescue those who are weak and weary. It's not our calling to take up swords. Claiming to be modern-day Jehus would certainly be a poor and wrong application of this text. Especially since God has told us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle, then, is waged in patient faith through the sword of God's word and prayer. If you wish to defeat the enemies of God, then make them friends of God by praying for them and proclaiming the gospel to them. Jesus will come again, just as he promised. In the meal that we're about to partake of, we're reminded of this. We eat the bread and we drink the fruit of the vine, proclaiming his death until he comes. And just as there was a delay between the time of God's promise to avenge Naboth's death and the actual fulfillment of God's promise, so there's a delay in between the time of Christ's promise to return and His actual return. We watch, we wait, and we pray. We pray for God to judge His enemies and to rescue His people, just as He told us He will. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.